True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is a Spotlight Minisode, our fortnightly check-in on true crime stories that are being covered in the South African news media right now. The first story I want to cover was brought to my attention by listener Jay Haber on our Facebook page. The crime in question actually didn't happen in South Africa, but the perpetrator is South African, and the consensus on the post was that it would be appropriate to cover the case on the podcast. On the 30th of September 2019 in Anchorage, Alaska, a pedestrian walking at the corner of Gamble Street and East 13th Avenue found an SD card lying on the pavement. For those who are not aware, SD stands for Secure Digital, and such a card is used as a storage medium in electronic devices so as not to fill up the device's memory with large files, and also so that you can easily transfer files to other devices. This SD card was labelled. It read, Homicide at Midtown Marriott. Midtown Marriott is a hotel located approximately two kilometers, as the crow flies, from where the SD card was found. There are three Marriott hotels in Anchorage, so the label would later help to narrow down which hotel needed to be looked at. It's unknown whether the pedestrian viewed the SD card, but considering the words on the card, they may have assumed it was part of an investigation and perhaps belonged to the police. Either way, the citizen handed the card over to the police, who viewed the information on it. On the SD card, they found 12 video clips and 39 still images, all of which appeared to depict the murder of an unknown female by an unknown male. The video clips, which are without a doubt very disturbing, are reported to show the victim, a naked, dark-haired woman, being strangled and beaten. The male in the video at one point allegedly stands on the woman's throat and shouts at her, Just die! He also laughs at the victim and screams unintelligibly at her throughout. Further images are said to show the woman's body, now wrapped in a white sheet, being moved through the parking lot to a vehicle, and then she's shown laying face down in the back of a bucky, or what Americans would call a truck or a pickup. At first, police reportedly weren't sure if the videos and images were real or staged. I can pretty much understand this, as I'm quite sure this was the first time in their careers they'd come across anything like this. Two days later, however, 
a body of an unidentified female, was found dumped on a road called Seward Highway. I did a bit of research into this stretch of highway, and it seems to be quite a popular dumping ground with one-off murderers and serial killers. Just recently, a man was convicted of the 1978 rape and murder of a teenager whose body was also dumped on the stretch of road. The infamous Alaskan serial killer, Robert Hansen, was also known to have dumped some of his victims nearby. I'm guessing that the attraction is its remoteness, and almost certainly that there would be times of the day when you would probably be the only car on the road. Investigators soon realised that the unidentified body matched the appearance of the woman in the video. Within a very short space of time, the woman was identified as 30-year-old Kathleen Jo Henry. Kathleen was originally from a southwest Alaskan village. Kathleen is an indigenous Alaskan. Indigenous Alaskan women have, for many decades, experienced high levels of violence, and there's a growing debate in the state as to whether these women are being singled out for violence, tax and murder because they're part of a so-called invisible group of people. In most states in America, and even Canada, where there are still large groups of indigenous people, it seems to be a running theme that they feel police and law enforcement as a whole don't take their cases as seriously as they may the cases of other races in the country or state. Let's be real here for a second. This happens. All over the world, groups of people who are either more at risk or who are generally in lower economic classes due to their history are treated differently, if not by law enforcement, then at the very least by the media. It happens in South Africa too. The phenomenon is probably a combination of factors, including historical biases and racial profiling, but it boils down to the fact that not all cases get equal treatment. Unfortunately, this is not just a sad circumstance. It is also an attraction for the type of people that want to do very bad things and get away with it. Most serial killers, for instance, select at-risk victims like sex workers, mostly because they know they can get away with it for a pretty long time before someone sits up and takes notice. It's not uncommon for sex workers and drug addicts to disappear for periods of time, and due to the nature of their lifestyles, they may have broken awful bonds with their loved ones and will therefore not quickly be missed. Due to the fact that Indigenous women in America and Canada get less press coverage and their disappearances are explicable for certain periods, the communities in which these women live have become the breeding grounds for predators looking for easy targets. Are these women making themselves easy targets? No, not at all. And no more than a white college student in California is. They're just living their lives but due to societal circumstances beyond their control, they've become highly at risk. For Kathleen, the nature of the way her case unravelled meant that there was no choice but to sit up and take notice. Once she'd been identified and her last movements ascertained, police were able to confirm that the footage of her murder 
was indeed taken in one of the rooms at the Midtown Marriott Hotel. There are conflicting accounts of how the man in the video was identified. One account says that when he spoke on the video, police were able to pick up that he had a foreign accent, a South African accent. If that was the case, it wouldn't have been much more than an admin exercise to narrow down South Africans in Anchorage. Another account, however, has a far more chilling ring to it. It is claimed that police recognised the man in the video because they were dealing with him on another case. The man was identified as 48-year-old Brian Stephen Smith. Brian Smith has lived in Anchorage permanently since 2013. He moved there from Queenstown in the Eastern Cape, where he was born, raised and went to school. Brian married his wife in 2014 and is a naturalised American citizen, meaning that he most likely gained his citizenship after marrying a citizen and remaining living with and married to that citizen for three years. When you reach that three-year mark, you can then submit an application to become a naturalised citizen. From his social media accounts, Smith appears to have a sister and a nephew in South Africa, as well as some extended family. His wife has not taken his surname, and I believe that this could be because she started working as a musician shortly after their marriage. She originally worked for the Department of Immigration. Brian Smith was arrested when he landed at Ted Stevens International Airport in Anchorage, returning from an unknown destination. A search warrant was obtained for his home, and several electronic items, including laptops, were removed from the house. He was arraigned on charges, including first-degree murder, and is being held on a $750,000 bond. So who is Brian Smith? I could find very little information about him on the South African side. It was even difficult to determine whether he had in fact lived anywhere else in South Africa besides Queenstown. I would guess it would be highly likely, though. Some of his family members live in Port Elizabeth and Plettenberg Bay. When he moved to America, he worked for a company in the construction sector, and from social media, it appears that he travelled quite a lot when he first moved there. He left that company in 2017, and is currently listed as self-employed. Considering he was getting off a plane when he was arrested, I assume that travel is still a large part of either his personal or business life. Smith is, of course, innocent until proven guilty, but I think that the video footage of him killing someone is compelling enough evidence for us to say that Outside of him proving that a person that looks and talks just like him in the video is a doppelganger or a long-lost twin, it's pretty safe to say that he committed this crime. The evidence against him does not stop there, though. The murder is said to have taken place between the 4th and the 6th of September. During that period, Smith registered a room at the Marriott Midtown in his name. The carpet in the room shown in the video matches the carpet in the room he stayed in. 
the vehicle seen in the photographs where Kathleen's body is being loaded up for disposal, matches one owned by Smith. His cell phone activity puts him in the area of Seward Highway when the body was dumped, and it put him in the vicinity of the street crossing where the SD card was found. Miracles do happen, and as crazy as this case has been so far, his defense may just pull a golden-furred speaking rabbit out of a hat and teach it to ride a bicycle. But failing that, let's play devil's advocate and say that Brian Smith murdered Kathleen Henry. The nature of the crime doesn't scream that it's his first time. I realize he made some very stupid mistakes and got caught, but it all came down to him dropping the SD card. The description of how he behaved in the video doesn't say to me that it's a crime of passion. He laughed at her, and reportedly seemed to enjoy her struggling. He did, however, appear to have difficulty in killing her, but this could simply be down to the fact that she fought harder than his previous victims. I'm saying previous victims as an assumption, of course. There's no proof of that. He may well have snapped and gone off the edge at 48 years old, with no prior history of violence. That is a possibility. In my opinion, there's a far higher possibility that he's done this before. In America, he's travelled extensively to areas like Montana and other parts of Alaska, which are remote and have populations of indigenous people. He also lived in South Africa for 42 years of his life in the Eastern Cape, which has extensive areas of land that is not built up, and many groups of people living below the breadline who are at risk. In a study of over 2,500 serial killers in the US, it was determined that the average age at which a serial killer starts killing is 27 and a half years old. Was Brian Smith really 48 years old when he committed his first murder? or was Kathleen Henry not his first victim? Reports have said that his sister and cousin made statements to the effect that Smith is a very gentle man. His wife stated that he was a very good husband, and she cannot believe that he would have been capable of such a horrendous crime. The wives of the Green River serial killer and the BTK strangler both described those men as good husbands. There is, of course... Another possibility here, and that relates to the fact that Smith filmed the murder. While it's not completely unknown for a killer to take trophies, even going as far as pictures, video or audio, there's also a market for films like that. It's called snuff porn. A snuff film is essentially an amateur video, usually of two people having sex, and at the end of the video, one of the people either kills the other one or pretends to do so. There are two sides to this very dark medium. Footage that is staged well enough that the victim appears to really die, but is not killed. Consumers of this type of snuff film will usually be aware that the victim is not being killed, but the portrayal is realistic enough to serve their fantasy. The darker side of this medium is for consumers for whom role-playing is not enough. 
There are people who will pay very good money to watch a sexual encounter that ends in the very real death of one of the parties involved. I know, we live in a very sick world. Logically, the people being killed are not going to be willing participants in their own murders. They may think that they're taking part in a normal sexual encounter, perhaps not even being aware that they're being filmed. Or they may think that they're participating in a standard porn film. Now clearly these films are not going to be readily available with other porn titles online. Real snuff films are found on the dark web, in chat rooms and on platforms created specifically for people with that sort of interest. Similar to chat rooms and websites that cater for pedophiles and child porn, these websites often require a form of payment for entry. Members may be required to prove their allegiance by submitting their own snuff material to the group for viewing. I realise that this theory involves a ton of assumptions, but it is as possible, in my opinion, as Smith having been a first-time killer or a serial killer. Smith has a prolific online presence, I would say more so than most men his age. He clearly knows his way around the internet. He travels a lot, and would logically have quite a bit of time to himself. If Smith had become involved in a snuff site, Kathleen's murder could have been his initiation. It would explain why he filmed himself, and also why he showed the bravado for the camera. Smith is yet to plead to the charges he faces, and as this legal process continues, there'll no doubt be more information that comes to light to point us in the right direction. There are many unanswered questions. How did Kathleen and Brian meet? Why was he staying in a hotel in the same town he lived in? That alone indicates some level of pre-planning to me. Did Kathleen willingly go with him, thinking that it was just going to be a sexual encounter and then things went very wrong? The sensation around this strange tale, though, should never take away from the fact that Kathleen Henry lost her life. She was only 30 years old. No matter what happened that night, or how prolific Brian Smith is proven to be as a killer, she is what matters here. I'll keep you updated as the case progresses, and I truly hope that there is justice for Kathleen. In September, a young couple... Matthew and Karen Turner and their son were visiting Hluleka Game Reserve while on holiday. They'd been travelling to attend a friend's wedding and had extended the getaway to celebrate Karen's birthday, which fell on Monday the 16th of September. That night, the couple was attacked while sleeping in their chalet in the resort. Matthew would later recount that he'd woken up while being stabbed to see two men in the room, One was stabbing him, and the other was stabbing his wife, Karen. He pushed the intruders away and stumbled down the stairs, with the intruders escaping by jumping off the chalet's balcony. Matthew recalled that Karen had looked at him in shock, and remarked that he had a lot of blood on him. Before losing consciousness, 
Karen told Matthew to check on their two-year-old son. Thankfully, the child was unharmed. It would later emerge that a stab wound had severed the femoral artery in Karen's thigh, which is the major artery for blood supply to your legs. She essentially bled to death. Sadly, Karen was three months pregnant. Matthew screamed for help, and friends sleeping in a nearby chalet said that they heard the shouting and wondered why no one was assisting the person. They then realised it was Matthew's voice. They approached the chalet and Matthew opened the back door. Emergency services and police were called, but Karen's brother, Ian Crouch, used a friend's helicopter to fly to the scene. He arrived before police and entered the chalet. He described the scene as a bloodbath. Matthew lost consciousness after opening the door for his friends and was rushed into surgery. He spent three days in ICU. Ian would later say that when he arrived on the scene, he found a group of resort staff members gathered. They were being spoken to by a woman, and he says that she was allegedly telling them that a Vuyani had said that they must say there were no staff members at the lodge after 11pm or before 7am. Karen's family would later go on to slam the resort for attempting to paint the attack as a domestic incident, in their opinion, to stop negative reports about the resort. They also said that police gave the wrong impression by releasing a statement saying that Matthew was the only one who would lead them to the killers, which in their opinion implied to the public that Matthew was involved. The family hired a private investigator within hours of the murder, as they did not believe that the case was going to be investigated fairly. Reports of there being no forced entry were also misleading, the family said, as two of the chalet windows were open, and that could easily have been where the intruders gained entry. In later reports, it was alleged that the resort is a hotbed of criminal activity, with cars regularly being broken into, and confrontations often occurring between resort staff members and locals. It is also alleged that on the evening of Karen's murder, the admin office at the resort was broken into. As tragic as this case is, it's also very confusing, and a month later, with there having been no arrests, I'm starting to get a bit concerned. It worries me that there were so many people on the scene before police arrived. I fully understand the family's outrage at the allegations that have been made against Matthew, but I think that we need to put things into perspective. A country has just experienced a period of heightened awareness of violence against women. Women are far more likely to be killed by their partners than a stranger. We've also had many cases in the press recently where husbands have been convicted of killing their wives and partners. Before I realised the severity of Matthew's wounds, I had my own concerns about his involvement, to be honest. The apparent lack of motive is what concerns everyone, I think. Nothing was stolen, and there was no sexual attack on Karen. The murder seems to have happened for absolutely no reason. That coupled with the fact that in the days just after the murder, the police seemed quite certain about a quick arrest 
yet a month later, there seems to be no further progress, is bound to get the minds of the public and press ticking. I can only hope that resolution is imminent, but that won't bring Karen back. Her son now has to grow up without a mother, and her unborn child didn't even get the opportunity to take its first breath. The longer this remains unresolved, the more likely it is that people are going to come up with their own theories. I'll keep you updated on this one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is all we're going to cover in this mini-sode. As always, I love to hear what you think about the cases we discuss, and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Your support is always greatly appreciated, and I'll chat to you soon.